All right, you guys can open up to the book of Ezra, Ezra chapter 4. Ezra chapter 4 is where we're going to be this morning. My plan going into the week and through most of the week was to go Ezra 4 through 6. Uh, but if I did that, y'all would be, uh, y'all be uh, missing lunch. So I had to, I had to dr- dial it back just a little bit. So we're just going to stick in Ezra chapter 4 this morning. Uh, Ezra chapter 4 is where we're going to be. We're going to keep looking at the, uh, the book of Ezra and just kind of give you an idea this morning of just how long this long road home is for the Jews. Uh, I told you uh, a couple of weeks ago that uh, sometimes when you read the Bible, it's just boring. That's just the way that it is. There's parts of it that just, they're flat out boring because it's not written for our entertainment and it's not written for you. Uh, and, and it's okay whenever we come across that, but just because it's boring doesn't mean we can't learn and we can't take something uh, from that. Uh, it's a book written to tell us about how God has worked in history, and sometimes there are parts of that that can be boring. And there's also some times where it can just be stinking confusing. It can just be uber confusing. And this week is one of those weeks where it just it's really confusing if you don't understand what's going on and you can't parse out everything that's happening in Ezra uh, chapter 4. And we should expect this too. After all, this book was written 2,500 years ago. And so we should, ha- we should expect to have to do a little bit of, of work for some of these things to make sense to us at times. And this morning we've got some work to do. But I think if you'll hang with me as we explain what's happening here uh, in chapter 4 is that uh, there will be some important lessons for us to learn. Um, We'll see if I end up being a little bit shorter since I cut some of what I was going to talk about, but uh, I make no promises. Usually when I promise to be shorter, I end up longer. So Ezra chapter 4, and we're going to open up by reading the first couple of verses from chapter 4. Now the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the returned exiles were building a temple to the Lord, the God of Israel. If you weren't here last week, this is what we saw was happening. The exiles have come back to Jerusalem. They've set up just the very most, the most basic things for them to be able to set up in order to, uh, to kind of get life going. And they're back to the temple and they're building the temple. As quickly as they can get there, that is what they're doing. Then last week what we saw is that you had this kind of dual thing that was happening. You had, uh, you had in Ezra chapter 4, you had, or at the end of chapter 3, you had uh, some of the people who were super excited, who were really thought this was just an amazing thing that was happening, and you had another group of people, the older guys, it says, that were weeping at what they had seen in the temple and what they had watched and what had happened uh, as they realized that this temple would not match the glory of the former temple. And so uh, that's where we pick up here, and it says that uh, they've got this temple going, and now there are adversaries to the temple as it is being built. Verse 2, they approached our guys Zerubbabel and the heads of fathers' houses and said to them, Let us build with you, for we worship your God as you do. And we have been sacrificing to him ever since the days of Ezrahaddon, king of, king of Assyria, who brought us here. So if you read that and you stop right there, your first thought is, this is great. So not only has, uh, have they come back from exile, they've got friendly neighbors. They've come over and they've said, hey, I see what you guys are doing. This looks like a really great project. Can we help? 
They brought the, the chocolate chip cookies as a housewarming gift, and they said, welcome to the neighborhood. We're glad you're finally doing something with this place because the rubble was kind of bringing down the property value in the area, and now you guys are going to fix it up, so this is great. I'm so glad that you guys are here. And they say, we'll, we'll be happy to jump in and help. After all, we've lived here for a long time. And we know where to find all the supplies that you need. We've got some skilled craftsmen that can help you guys out. Let us help you build the temple. So the altar's been built. The foundation has been laid. They, they, they've got to get to work on the temple and see some progress. This should be the part from like an HGTV, you know, from Fixer Upper where they go to the montage and they go from the house looking really terrible to uh, in 60 seconds it looks amazing after that because it's just the the quick montage. That should be where we're at uh, in the story as the walls go up. It's really a great spot that they're in. They've got great neighbors. They've got all this that is going on. It seems like this should be the happily ever after moment. And the temple was built, and all God's people rejoiced, and this was the end of that. It seems like a nice offer. So let's see what Zerubbabel says to their friendly new neighbors. Ezra chapter 4, verse 3. But Zerubbabel, Jeshua, and the rest of the heads of fathers, the rest of the heads of fathers' houses in Israel said to them, You have nothing to do with us in in building a house to our God, but we alone will build to the Lord the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. Well, that was not very nice at all on Zerubbabel's behalf there. Uh, That's not what you would expect either, because they need this help right now. So we we would not expect this to happen. We would expect that, uh, we're just going to call him Z, because I can't keep saying his name over and over. We would expect that Z would welcome the help with open arms, like, yes, this would be fantastic if you guys would jump in and help us out. We could get this thing built so much faster. After all, if the temple gets built faster, what else gets built faster after that? The city walls, which means that they have security, they have safety, they don't have anything to fear, because as long as the temple isn't built, the city walls can't be built. And as long as the city walls can't be built, they are exposed to attack, they are exposed to thieves, they are exposed to all kinds of things without those walls built. So if these guys are willing to help, then they can probably do a lot, especially since they're locals. This seems like a win-win. So why in the world was Zerubbabel so rude to these seemingly really nice guys? He was rude because he had learned the lesson of generations before him. You see, Z and his crew, have they've returned from exile. They've come back from exile. They've brought all of these people back from uh, the Babylonian captivity. And they get there, and they're doing their level best not to repeat history. They're doing all that they can to not see the same thing happen. If you'll remember when we started this series, what we talked about was the reason that they were taken off into exile, the reason that the Babylonians had conquered them. And there's a lot we could talk about, but one of the things we talked about is that Israel had a massive problem and that the southern kingdom, Judah, had a massive problem. Now, they had a lot of problems, but their biggest problem that the prophets keep harping on with them is that they were... And, and they were constantly warned by the, the prophets, is they had an issue with syncretism. Do you remember we talked about that a few weeks ago? Syncretism. And syncretism is where two or more religions kind of get all enmeshed together so that you can't 
tell one apart from the other. They kind of become their own new entity, right? This is what syncretism is. Remember, it's like they sync up, and they sync up to such a point that you can't separate the two. Gods are shared, rituals are shared, and it's almost this new religion that kind of takes place. A good a good place for you to look at that today to kind of get an example of what syncretism looks like is you just look at politics in, the, in American life, right or left. Uh, you look at politics in American life, and it can be almost impossible to distinguish between what some would call Christianity and what others would call politics because the two worlds have become so enmeshed together that it's almost impossible to separate those two things in a lot of different circles. And this goes, like I said, for both sides. I saw more than one person during this election cycle, and it happens every time, but uh, I think as politics elevates itself to the level of religion, you'll see this more and more and more uh, as, as these two things become even more syncretized. You see more and more people who would say, if you vote for candidate A, then you can't be a Christian. And just as many people would say, if you vote for candidate B, then there's no way you could be a Christian. This was said of Trump and Biden during this election cycle. There's no way you could vote for either one of the, or for this guy and be a Christian. You have to vote for my guy. There's no way you can vote for my guy. You have to vote. This happens so much. And what you see whenever this happens, whenever you hear something like that, is that politics and religion have become indistinguishable from one another for a lot of people. When you can't talk about one without talking about the other, that is syncretism. And this was what sent the Jews into exile once. And so whenever these people show up with this nice offer to help, Zerubbabel is like, no way. I am not going back down that road again. We just came back from exile. I'm not about to get enmeshed with these other people and these other things that they are doing. Even whenever he hears their offer and he hears their reassurance that they too worship Yahweh, because what they say is, we were forced here by a king from Assyria, and and whenever we got here, we were introduced to Yahweh, and so we started worshiping Yahweh too. The problem is, and it doesn't say in this text, but we know this from history, they didn't renounce their other gods and then convert to become uh, worshipers of Yahweh. They just added Yahweh to their pantheon of gods. The same thing of what happened whenever we talked about uh, Exodus and whenever we talked about uh, the Assyrians uh, a few weeks ago. Like, or the Persians a few weeks ago. Their whole thing is not so much that you renounce other gods. It's that if you have more gods, the more the merrier. As long as you've got more gods on your side, you've got a better chance of winning the battle when you go up against another nation and you go up against their gods. So we'll add Yahweh to our group. And so whenever these guys show up and they say, we worship God just like you guys do, not exactly. They worship God in addition to their other gods. Which if you know the first command, if you know the Ten Commandments, then what you know is that to, to worship God alongside the other gods is not how that works. God demands full worship. There are no other gods. It's not there are no other gods uh, above me, but there are others beside me. That's not what he said. He says there's no other gods but me. And so what happens is whenever they show up and they say, hey, we want, we want to jump in and help you guys, Zerubbabel realizes this is going to be a big problem. 
Because if these guys come in and they start helping with the temple, then that means I'm going to owe these guys something. This is a political play. This is a religious play. And he realizes, I can't sync up with these guys. we got to be here about our business. To allow them to join in would have been a compromise that placed them on the same path as their forefathers that led to their destruction. I want you to hear me this morning, church. Satan can work in many, many ways. And it's easy to think about how Satan works as being full-on opposition to what God is doing. Full-on opposition. Full-on war. And it is full-on war. But it often doesn't look like two sides just going at it. Satan is far more subversive than that. In fact, Satan is happy to let God win in certain arenas. He's happy to let God's people be quote-unquote successful, so long as they're successful on his terms. Sometimes Satan works in full opposition to God's people. Oftentimes he does. But just as often, all he wants to do is introduce a little bit of compromise, a little bit of hedging, a little bit of, eh, we'll let that one slide. And that's as much a victory for him as anything else. Turn with me real quick to Matthew chapter 4. I just want to show you this in action, how Satan does this. Matthew chapter 4 in the New Testament. We won't be there long. But if you turn to Matthew chapter 4, what you find in Matthew chapter 4 is Jesus is being tempted by Satan. This is after he is baptized. He goes out into the wilderness. He completes a fast for 40 days. When the fast is over, then Satan comes to him and he gives him three temptations. He goes over three temptations with Jesus. And as he goes over these temptations, he's got uh, kind of different different strategies for each one. I want to look at the last one in verse 8. You get to the last temptation, and it says, Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. And then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan. For it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. So what happens in that temptation? Satan takes him up and he says, look at everything you see. It's all yours if you want it. And here's the thing. Satan is the father of lies, so maybe he's lying there. But the text gives us no indication that he's lying there. I'm convinced that Satan would have been happy to give Jesus full reign over all that stuff so long as he had full reign over Jesus. Satan would have been happy to let Jesus win and be successful, giving him full reign. Remember, this is Jesus who's about to be constantly rejected by his own people. And Satan is saying, you don't have to go that route. You don't have to be that person. You don't have to do it that way. In fact, In fact, if you'll just worship me, I'll give you everything that you came for. So what Satan says is, I don't have to destroy you, Jesus. I just need you to compromise with me a little. Just work with me a little bit. Just compromise just a little bit, Jesus. That's all I really need from you. From the first sin when Satan said, did God really say to a seemingly innocent offer from foreigners to help them rebuild the temple. 
to Satan's offer for Jesus to rule the world without a cross, to today's constant pull for us to mix a little bit of culture and a little bit of Jesus and a little bit of politics and call it Christianity. Satan doesn't have to defeat us. He just has to get us off course a little bit. He just has to get us to compromise just a little bit. That's all he needs. He's just as happy to introduce a little bit of compromise as he is to sink the whole ship. It doesn't matter to him if the ship just gets off course a little bit so long as it doesn't reach its intended target. And he'll get you to compromise and just get your headings off a little bit or he'll blow the whole thing up. Both work for him. We would do well to always be on the lookout for Satan's subtle temptations. But make no mistake, if the subtle temptations to compromise don't work, he will go for the kill shot. That's what the next three chapters are about. Ezra chapter 4, if you keep on going in verse 4, let's just see what it says. Chapter 4, verse 4. Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build and bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose. All the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. So when this syncretism ploy failed, it was time to try something else, something a little more direct. And it says, the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah. The people of the land discouraged the people of Judah. Now we don't know exactly what that means, but it doesn't take much uh, imagination to figure out what this might look like. We know for a fact some of the things that they did. One of the things that they did is they were bribing and were working with uh, officials in the area to not let certain things happen, to make things frustrate things, make them harder. We know that they disrupted the supply chain coming from Lebanon to Jerusalem. It was a long way to get the building materials there. It was an, an easily exposed and manipulated route. And so they constantly were disrupting the supply chain so they couldn't even get the building materials to the temple. So it was full-on opposition at that point. Not only that, they, they almost certainly threatened their safety. Again, there's no wall. These people that came back from exile, they were no soldiers. They hadn't even had uh, their own, their own uh, nation for generations. So there was no soldiers, and they, they didn't have a dad that was a soldier. They didn't have a grandpa that was a soldier. These were just people going back home, hoping to, to build a temple and be back in the place that they, they knew was their homeland. They were a group of preoccupied people. It took every ounce of energy, creativity, thought, all of that was all directed towards building the temple and building their own homes. The last thing that they needed to do was to worry about being attacked. And so what happens then is they are distracted from that work because they have to look outward to the forces that are coming towards them. So when the outsiders start threatening attack, it's debilitating to the work at hand. And the people would have been discouraged by the slow, almost non-existent progress on the temple. And they were discouraged. And we'll come back to this in a minute, and we'll talk about it a lot more next week. But what is clear is that God's people did not press on. In fact, they stopped completely. For about 16 or 17 years, they stopped. The, the building of the temple just comes to a 
halt. Think of how sad that is. From the emotional scene that we saw last week of people weeping and people shouting with joy at what they had just witnessed at the foundations of the temple being laid. The, the big moment that this was for the Jews. The, the huge triumph that this was for so many of them. And now it all just stops. You ever driven by a construction site that just stopped? Like they ran out of money? They didn't count site? Where they got it kind of like halfway built and then it just stops? On the way to Emily's parents' house, there's a, there's a house that's kind of down in a hole. Isaiah mentioned this the other day. He's like, how long have they been working on I think they've been working on that house my whole life. Uh, and he's probably right. I think they have. And I remember when it was being built thinking, oh, that'll be a pretty nice house. They got it kind of started. And, and, and like now whenever you drive over there, there's this big gap between uh, the, the yard up to the, the house. And you have to walk over it on a ladder which seems crazy, like a ladder laying down, which just seems crazy dangerous to me. Um, but it's looked like that for years. And what was this fresh wood that had been put up there? They got the trusses up for the, for the top of the house for the roof, and then it just stopped. And it went from being this thing that's like, oh, an exciting new build for a house to go there, to now this thing that just looks like, oh, how sad. What happened there? Did somebody die? Did somebody go bankrupt? What in the world happened there? And it's all this wood now is starting to rot. It's starting to turn. It's got kind of the dark color to it. And you can tell it doesn't have much longer until that house is going to start falling apart because it never got the siding. It never got the roof. That half-finished construction site is a sad and discouraging site. And that's exactly what happened. Why? Because they met opposition. Some pretty stern opposition. And that would be the theme for them for the next decade and really the next century. That would become the theme of the people of Judah. That's what all these next couple of chapters are about. And then look in in verse 6 and 7. This is where things get really confusing. Look in verse 6 and 7. I'm just going to read these two and then I'm going to explain to you what in the world just happened. All right. So Ezra chapter 4 verse 6 and 7. And the reign of Ahasuerus, in the beginning of his reign, they wrote an accusation against the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem. Full stop. That encapsulates something that happened. Now go to verse 7. In the days of Artaxerxes, Bishlam and Mithredath and Tabil, I guess that's her name, and the rest of their associates wrote to Artaxerxes, king of Persia. Stop right there. All right. So what just happened here is we go from this story talking about uh, during the reign of Cyrus to the reign of Darius, and then we start talking about Ahasuerus, and then we start talking about Artaxerxes. What in the world just happened? We, went, we covered the span of four different kings in the span of three verses there. How in the world, what, what is Ezra doing? So what's happening here, and this is easy to miss if you're just reading through this or if you're listening to a reading plan or something like that, it's easy to miss what's happening here. What's happening is Ezra kind of steps back and, he, and he, puts, he, he pushes pause on the story that he's telling up through verse 5. And he says, y'all hang with me right there, because I just explained to you how the opposition came against them in these first few verses, what we've looked at so far this morning. 
But you guys need to know this was going to keep on going for years. And so what Ezra's doing is he's going to use a literary device where he pushes pause on the narrative in order to say, while I'm talking about opposition, let's just get a peek ahead in the story of all the opposition that was going to come to him. Right? So he, he talks about opposition under Cyrus and under Darius, and now he's going to talk about uh, opposition under uh, Ahasuerus. That's verse 6. Evidently, nothing came out of this opposition that they received in verse 6. It just says that people started writing letters saying, don't let these people build. But it doesn't show that anything happened. Then in verse 7, this is Artaxerxes, who came after Ahasuerus. So Artaxerxes is now the king, and these three associates write to Artaxerxes and say, hey, look at what's happening. And this is what we get from uh, verse 7 through verse 20, see the 24, 25, uh, through verse 23. Uh, and then 24, it goes to the, it, it resumes the old narrative. So from verse 6 through verse 23 is kind of a parenthesis in the story that Ezra is telling. For him to say, let me talk to you about all this opposition they were going to have. And then he gives you this story about a letter that is written to Artaxerxes by these three guys. And what happens in this story is basically they write to Artaxerxes and they say, hey, did you know that they were building this temple out here? Are you going to let them do that? Can you imagine how that would look if, if people found out you were doing this? You look like a weak king. You're going to lose some people if you let them build this city and if you let them build this temple. And then Artaxerxes is like, you're right. We've got to put a stop to this. We've got to be done with this. This is what, this is what he, he explains here. Uh, and it talks about, it, it, it's written in an entirely different language. The rest of the book's written in Hebrew. This section is written in Aramaic. It's written in Aramaic because that would have been the, the, the language of the royal decrees that are happening at the time. And so Ezra is just kind of repeating these, this, royal, uh, uh, this royal exchange of, uh, of decrees that, that happens. That's what happens here. Easy to miss that that's what's happening here. It's super confusing. But it's because he's not necessarily telling the story uh, in a linear fashion. He does in some places, and he also kind of pushes pause on that just to explain opposition is going to keep coming. It's going to keep coming, and it's going to keep coming. It's going to come whenever, whenever, uh, whenever Darius becomes king. It's going to come whenever Ahasuerus becomes king. It's going to come whenever Artaxerxes is king. It's just not going to stop. God's people will always deal with opposition. So that's what he does here. He lays all of this out, and he says, this is where we're at. And then in verse 24, he picks back up on the story that we were telling where he had left off. So verse 24 of chapter 4 says, Then the work on the house of God that is in Jerusalem stopped, and it ceased until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. So all he's trying to, to tell us is, opposition never stops. And whenever it comes to the first round of opposition, when it comes to the first time that people pressed up against God's people, when it came to this first one, the temple stopped building. In spite of all the progress they were making, the, the temple stopped being built altogether for about 16 or 17 years until you get to the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. It's a crazy story. They just kind of quit. They're so discouraged. They just quit. 
They stop trying to get the building supplies in because they can't make it anyway. They can't do anything about it. So how do they get this back going again? This is what we'll talk about next week. Enter Haggai and Zechariah. This is where their prophecies come in. This is what we'll talk about next week. But for now, I just want to draw out this reality. God's people will always run into opposition when they are doing God's work. Always. But even as I say that, I hesitate. Because whenever I say that, each of you out there has a different idea of what that means when I say opposition. And each of you has a different idea that like your own personal application that you say whenever you say that. So if God's people are going to run into opposition, some of y'all are like, yeah, and I'm ready to fight. Let's go. Like you're all about some opposition. That's fine. Doesn't matter to me. Come on. I don't care if you like me. Let's fight. Let's go. And then others of you are like, oh man, I don't like opposition. Can we please just avoid conflict? Because I will avoid conflict if I can avoid conflict. And and you, you hear about opposition and, and you just think, I don't know if I'm built for this, or you think, all right, I was made for this, one or the other. And I don't think either one of those impulses are right. There are two common impulses that play out in the church whenever we run into opposition like this. The first impulse would be to, to say yes, like, like whenever they, they first came to, to Zerubbabel, Right? How different does this story play out if he makes friends with these people instead of them becoming opposition? You know, this is the, this is the first thing, is the impulse in the church is that we've got to ease our message. We've got to make our message seem more palatable to the world. We have to adopt the world's way of looking at the world. We have to adopt the world's definition of right and wrong. And then we have to say a prayer and call it Christian and call it a day. And then we make friends with the world and we can be more successful and our churches can get bigger and more people will give money and people will pat us on the back and they will say, look at the great work that you guys are doing. And Satan says, that's fine. Compromise all day long. We can't drop Jesus We can't drop Jesus and then take just a bit of the Bible here and a bit of the Bible there and kind of bring in the the, the church here and the world over here and then say, I hope nobody will be mad at us now because we've removed this stuff that doesn't really jive with our culture. That's the first impulse. The second impulse is that we place ourselves in this, this, this stance of constant defiance. We're looking for a fight. We're looking to be the morality police. We're looking to be the the theology police. We're looking for people that are going to post something on Twitter that we can pounce on them and be like, that's not right. Let me show you the verse where that's not right. How can you, you heretic? We're looking for people where we can really kind of get after them and be like, how dare you? You can't say that to me. Oh, did that make you mad? All right, let's fight. Let's go. And so we're in this constant state of defiance. We pick fights and we say things like, if we aren't getting opposition, then we aren't doing God's work. And we pretend that the reason people hate us is because we're doing God's work, but really people hate us because we deserve it and we're jerks. We're a people 
we become a people built on the premise that we are right and it's our job to take down the world and show them how wrong they are at all times. The problem is God does not call us to do that. He does not call us to go about telling the world how wrong they are at all times. He does call us to love the world, to care for the world. He does call us to share grace, but he does call us to stand in truth, yes. But he does not call us to be the, the constant police looking to pick a fight with people. So we have to be careful with both of these impulses where we compromise so much that we don't have Christianity and where we fight so much that we don't have Christianity. There's got to be a different way that we approach this. And the problem isn't so much like, yes, neither of those approaches are great, but the reason that they are so bad is because they completely miss the point. Because they are entirely oriented to the world around us. Either compromising to it or getting in a fight with it. That seems to be the two options. Or this text shows us there is a third option. We can just kind of give up. Be super discouraged all the time. This is an easy one. I talked to a lot of you that this is where you're at. You're just discouraged. You see what's happening. You see the syncretism that's happening in politics. You see the, the, the redefining of right and wrong, the, what Chris was talking about with truth and, and discerning what truth and error is and how far the world has gotten away from anything close to what the Bible would lay out as a biblical ethic, and you're just discouraged. And we see that people can't stand us because we call ourselves Christians. And we see the full-blown hostility that is against us because we would say that we follow Jesus. And it in, it's increasing by the minute. Your impulse isn't to compromise. Your impulse is not to fight. Your impulse is to quit. Or at least be discouraged. To be sad. To be downcast. You don't want to fight because it's hard enough to live in this world without making enemies. So instead, you just sit at home. You watch the news. You scroll social media and you realize we've got a real problem on our hands. And it just makes me sad and you get discouraged. The problem with all three of these options, compromise, fight, or discouragement, is that they all, it, it's all about our response to the outside world. It's all about what is happening around us and our response to it. And what we've got to shift is that it's not so much about what is happening outside of us, but instead who we are and who God has made us to be that determines everything about us. So long as we are constantly reacting to the world, we will always find ourselves in the wrong place. So long as we are constantly looking to see what is happening around us, we will always find ourselves shaped and defined in the wrong way. Here's, I want to show you how this, how this works here. So there's two ways that this works. So I got some good old-fashioned Play-Doh. Just, ah, oh, this one's so good. So got some good old-fashioned Play-Doh here, right? So the Play-Doh, whenever you, you get it out, I, I wish I had some artistic ability and I could wow you with something, but this might be the best you'll get this whole time, right? So I can, I can do the snake. That's about all I can do. Um, but, but the reality is whatever I do to this Play-Doh, it's, it's going to take that form. It's going to take that shape. Whatever outside forces are, are pressed into this Play-Doh, that's what it becomes. Because it's totally reacting to outside forces to it. It's designed for that. 
That's what happens. Just the, whatever you do to it, whatever I do, that's what it's going to do. I want it flat, it's going to be flat. If I want to make it a ball, it's going to be a ball. If I want to make it into, into a snake, I'll make it. Whatever happens from the outside, that's what it becomes, right? This is not stone, but we're going to pretend it's stone for the sake of the illustration, right? We're going to pretend that this is stone. Now, whenever you're carving something out of stone... There's two different ways that you can look at it. Like you're carving and you're, and you're crafting something. But I don't know, you guys ever seen the statue of David? You've seen any of those like really ornate, very particular statues, what they, what they look like? There's a quote that, that it's in several different forms. I don't know which one of these is true, but I'm going to give you one that's generally uh, the one that's accepted. This is from Michelangelo. What he says is, the sculpture is already complete within the marble block before I start my work. It is already there. I just have to chisel away the superfluous material. I just have to take away the extra stuff. The structure is already complete within the block. So if you take just a, a, a square block, the statue is already in there. He saw his job as just removing the other stuff, just unearthing what's already there. Friends, this is the way we are to be as Christians. Not molded by outside sources. Not simply taking the shape of whatever happens around us by reacting, by picking a fight, by looking at what somebody else is doing and being discouraged, by looking what else is out there and trying to mold our message to make them happy. We cannot function that way. Instead, we function like the statue that's within the block, that's within the stone. And yes, outside forces press in on us. Yes, this block is here and outside forces are chiseling away. And it hurts and it stinks and it's no good. But each time that that chisel strikes, what's happening is there's something else being removed, something else being pulled away, something else being taken away so that a little bit more of who we already are comes forward. And we are already that person because of what we sang first song this morning. We are who God says we are. We are who he has made us to be, who he, is, who he is sanctifying us to be. That is who we are. So all we have to do is let those forces work and shape and bring out what God has already made us to be. So whenever the forces are chiseling away and chipping away, that is not something that's making us change shape. It is something that is revealing the character that God is already producing within us through Christ. That's how that is designed to work. So whenever you lose a job or whenever you deal with a, a, a kid that won't listen, whenever you deal with financial troubles, whenever health diagnoses come, whenever whatever it is that is discouraging you happens, when you watch the news and you lament the state of this country, you are not then molded to a reaction. Instead, something is chiseled away that says, I'm, making, I'm bringing forth what I have already built. God is saying, I'm just, I just got to get a little bit more off of you so that I can see a little bit more of what I've already done in you. That's the difference whenever we face opposition. God's people, yes, will always face opposition. God's people will always be tempted, always be tempted to compromise. All of those things are true. The question is, will you be molded by those temptations? Will you be molded by those things from the outside? So whenever that, that thing presses in on you, will it break you and will it tear you and will it hurt you? Or will you be the rock that you already are in Christ? Just being brought forth 
by the master craftsman who's bringing you out to say, it says in, in, in Ephesians that we are God's workmanship created in him for good works. His workmanship, that word is the same word that we would use for like a poem. He has crafted us and created us. And he's bringing us forward. We're already inside that block. He's just bringing us forward. So this morning, what my, what my, what my encouragement to you is, is that when this world presses in on you, either directly because it's in opposition to Christianity or simply because this world has fallen and that is what sin does, When this world presses in, whenever all of your problems press in on you, whenever discouragement is your temptation, don't be molded by that. Be the rock that you already are, that you have already been called to be in Christ. And let that come forward. That's what it means to face opposition as a Christian. It doesn't mean to pick a fight means that we're already created to be something. And from that, then we go out and we, as it says in 1 Corinthians, we go out and we minister to others because of what God has already done in us. And then he can do it through us. That's the way it's designed to work. And the only reason that it can work that way is because Christ has already made us that. He has already established that for us. He's just bringing it forward as we go throughout the trials of life. Will you pray with me? Father, this morning it is fully our confession that we are quickly and easily molded by the things outside of us. That too often we are not defined by how you define us, but by how we react to a fallen world around us. So Father, this morning, I, I, I pray for steadfastness. I pray for hope. I pray for encouragement. I pray for all of those things, but not in a sense that we just kind of stand and press back, but in a sense that you have revealed that that is already there for us through your son, Jesus Christ. Help us to know this truth in a way that we we just simply can't understand unless we are are crafted by you. Father, I thank you for the gospel. I thank you for the truth that you have not left us in a place to be destroyed by the consequences of sin. Where we are like the Plato, completely, completely left to our own devices to be manipulated by outside forces. But instead, because of the cross, we can cling to you and we can find our identity and our hope in that cross that is rock solid. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.